Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Of all the dimensions of central state authority, the American Civil War most profoundly shaped future state society developments in the relations of individual citizens to the state. Under the pressure of material and political mobilization, both the Union and Confederate states restructured the rights and duties of citizens in ways that reflected both roughly parallel developmental trajectories and major differences in the nature of the challenge each faced. In the Confederacy, the expansion focused on the duty of citizens to provide labor to the state and explored the potentially broad implications of a full categorical mobilization of the manpower of the South. The Union enacted a much less comprehensive conscription policy. However, the northern state was comparatively aggressive in the repression of dissident political organizations and vocal opposition in the press. Richard Franklin Benzel, Yankee Leviathan. War is the health of the state. It automatically sets in motion throughout society those irresistible forces for uniformity, for passionate cooperation with the government, in coercing into obedience the minority groups and individuals which lack the larger herd sense. The machinery of government sets and enforces the drastic penalties. In general, the nation in wartime attains a uniformity of feeling, a hierarchy of values, culminating at the undisputed apex of the state ideal, which could not possibly be produced through any other agency than war. Other values, such as artistic creation, knowledge, reason, beauty, the enhancement of life, are instantly and almost unanimously sacrificed, and the significant classes who have constituted themselves the amateur agents of the state are engaged not only in sacrificing these values for themselves, but in coercing all other persons into sacrificing them. The state represents all the autocratic, arbitrary, coercive, belligerent forces within a social group. It is a sort of complexus of everything most distasteful to the modern free creative spirit, the feeling for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
war is the health of the state. Only when the state is at war does the modern society function with that unity of sentiment, simple, uncritical, patriotic devotion, cooperation of services, which have always been the ideal of the state lover. Randolph Bourne, The State. CJ here. Welcome to episode 166 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Suppressing Dissent, Reinforcing Belief, The Not-So-Civil War Part 12, our 12th installment in this series. And that's, of course, not counting the Patreon bonus episodes that are tied into the series as well. I still have two more episodes planned, regular episodes planned in the series, in addition to one or perhaps several more bonus episodes related to the American Civil War. And originally, I was going to include the stuff that's going to be in this episode in my next episode, which is going to be about the actual ending of military operations of the war as the different Confederate armies surrendered and so on. But then I decided that that episode would be too unwieldy and that this stuff I'm going to cover in this episode right now was just not quite a great fit topically for an episode that would otherwise mostly be composed of the different Confederate armies surrendering and the collapse of the Confederate government and so on. So I decided I'd simply detach this stuff about suppressing dissent and reinforcing belief into its own standalone episode. So again, I'm planning on doing in the relatively near future two more regular episodes to round out this series. The next one, as of now, I'm calling Endgame for obvious reasons about the end of the war. And then I'm going to do one more regular episode in the series after that about sort of the aftermath, legacies, meaning, significance, different points of view on the war itself and what it really has meant to American history. In addition to that, um, in the relatively near future, I've got at least one Patreon bonus episode in the works that's going to have to do with the weapons and tactics, and I'll probably talk a bit about snipers and that kind of stuff in the American Civil War. And eventually though still this is potentially a ways off because I would have a lot more research to do to do it, I have in mind a bonus episode on the irregular warfare, the sort of guerrilla warfare and that kind of stuff of the American Civil War. So a lot of cool stuff in the works, including, by the way, on the foreseeable horizon, a multi-part series on Woodrow Wilson, who is my pick for the worst president in American history. I'm already pretty deep into the research for that one as well. And I want to take a moment now and do something I've done maybe once or twice before in the history of this show, I think, and I don't always like to do it, but sometimes I feel like I kind of have to, and that is I really need to put out a call for support 
from you guys in any way you can. Um, I've got kind of some personal and family slash medical slash financial issues going on at the moment. Plus, you've heard me mention before that um, in order to get out of doing summer school, I'm going to have to increase my income from the Dangerous History podcast to compensate for the loss of income of not doing summer school. Now, I did do summer school this summer, 2018, as I'm recording this, but the way that contracts work where I work is that each year you do your contract, it runs from August through the following July, and you're either nine-month or ten-month if you're a faculty member. Ten-month means you make a little bit more money, but you're required to do one summer term of classes. Up until now, including up through this current summer when I'm recording this, I have been a 10-month faculty member, which means I get a bit more money than a 9-month faculty member, but I have to do a full summer term where I have to be in work full-time and so on. Now, the goal I had set was to get up to at least $1,500 a month just off of Patreon contributions in order for me to back from a 10-month to a 9-month contract and therefore free up my entire summer instead of only having a portion of the summer off from my day job having the entire summer off, which again means a pay cut from my regular job. So I had a decision to make uh, a few months ago, and I had to make it. Do I want to, for the 2018-2019 contract and academic year, do I want to stay 10 month, which would mean doing summer school yet again in 2019, or back down to a nine month? And I made the move of, even though I'm not yet at $1,500 a month on Patreon, I said, you know what, I've got to do this at some point to free up that entire summer period for working on the podcast. And so I decided to go ahead and do it. Because, again, because of the nature of how the contracts work, I had to make that decision basically more than a year before whatever summer I would, you know, start not teaching summer school, if that makes any sense. So in other words, in late spring of 2018, I had to decide whether or not I was going to teach summer school in 2019 and notify my superiors of that decision. So I decided to go ahead and back off from a 10-month to a 9-month contract. Now here's the rub. And again, this is just in the nature of how the contracts work where I work. I'm not going to have that time freed up until we get to summer of 2019. But unfortunately, because that money from working in the summer is spread out over your entire year worth of paychecks, I'm getting the pay cut starting this August. So I'm taking a pay cut starting, you know, in a few weeks so that starting in the summer of 2019, I'll have summers off entirely to work on the podcast and things related to it. So. I'm sort of making an investment in the future of this podcast. And I really, again, on top of the kind of personal medical family stuff I'm dealing with right now, I really, really could use your help in any way you can to help me make that investment pay off to hopefully make up or even more than make up the money I'm going to be losing from my regular job by ducking out of summer school knowing that it's essentially an investment in the the growth and the future of this podcast. 
aside from helping me out through what is turning out to be kind of a tough time uh, personally at the moment. So if you've ever considered being a Patreon supporter of this show, but have not yet done so, really, I hope that you'll consider signing up. And if you used to be a Patreon supporter, but have stopped for some reason, I hope you'll consider coming back. Um, Unless, you know, you decided you hate me and you hate my content and you hate my show, in which case, why are you listening to this episode right now? But I hope you'll consider coming back. And also, if your Patreon payment method has expired and you just haven't gotten around to updating that, I hope you'll consider doing that for me as well in the near future. Now, obviously, caveats that if you're broke, if you're in some sort of tough period financially in your life, please by no means send me uh, any of your money until you're you know, comfortably able to do so, for sure. Um, I don't want to take the money of someone who's broke themselves. But if you're able to and you like what I do here and you want to make an investment in the future of this podcast, really you know, continuing to grow and be all that it can be, I hope you'll consider supporting me Patreon, as well as whether you are a supporter of the show via Patreon or become one or not, maybe you'll also consider uh, sending me in either instead of Patreon or in addition to Patreon, some sort of, you know, one-time donation via PayPal or anything like that. I could really use that right now as well. And again, you know, I'm not super comfortable with asking these sort of things But things are getting a little bit sketchy for me right now, and in order for me to continue doing what I'm doing here and continue to make it better and better as I can, I need your help. I need your help. So um, please consider any way you can help me out. And even if it's not financial, uh, if there's anything you can do to help spread the audience of this show, because in general, it's a small percentage of the overall listeners, very small percentage, like low single digits uh, of listeners of the show who actually are regular financial supporters of the show. And obviously the larger, just the overall audience gets that percentage will stay roughly the same, which means I'll be picking up more supporters. So anyway, kind of a little, a little SOS, a little distress signal. And of course, as always, many thanks to those of you who are already supporters of the show in any way. So anyway, that out of the way, let's get on with the show. talk briefly about habeas corpus, because this is one of the key rights that was frequently violated by both sides in different ways and to different degrees during the Civil War. Habeas corpus is a legal protection which is considered one of the key legal protections in the American legal system and in any sort of common law, English-speaking world legal system, a protection against unlawful detainment by the authorities. And its origins go back for centuries of Anglo-Saxon common law, at least as far back as Magna Carta. And I think you could argue that Magna Carta even was trying to recognize some things that had previously existed in Anglo-Saxon common law, just sort of by tradition and precedent. Habeas corpus is supposed to be a strong check by the judiciary against the executive branch of government. So, just a little bit more on formal definitions from Wikipedia. Quote, 
Habeas corpus, medieval Latin meaning literally that you have the body, is a recourse in law through which a person can report an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and request that the court order the custodian of the person, usually a prison official, to bring the prisoner to court to determine whether the detention is lawful. The writ of habeas corpus is known as the great and efficacious writ in all manner of illegal confinement, being a remedy available to the meanest against the mightiest. It is a summons with the force of a court order. It is addressed to the custodian, a prison official, for example, and demands that a prisoner be taken before the court and that the custodian present proof of authority, allowing the court to determine whether the custodian has lawful authority to detain the prisoner. If the custodian is acting beyond his or her authority, then the prisoner must be released. End quote. So, the idea is that you're not supposed to, if you're the executive branch or an agent acting on behalf of the executive branch, you're not supposed to be able to arbitrarily arrest someone without doing things like actually charging them with a specific crime based on some legit evidence and so on. And as we'll see, both the Union and Confederate governments suspended habeas corpus during the war, and they also trespassed into many other areas of individual rights and liberties, usually either in the name of catching draft resistors and draft dodgers, or simply for the purposes of suppressing dissent in general. And while the methods and tools by which the respective governments did this sort of thing were not limited to the suspension or ignoring of habeas corpus, that was an important part of the whole thing. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. So let's talk a little bit about the suppression of dissent that occurred in the Confederacy. The Confederacy never had a chance because of time and the fact that it only existed for about four years, never really had a chance to evolve real political parties. I mean, there were some, you know, sort of general factions, but there weren't real political parties. And it probably would have taken a generation or two for that to really formalize. And this somewhat limited the degree of opposition that President Jefferson Davis faced. And of course, facing actual invasion from Union armies also had a tendency to dampen down dissent in the South, at least somewhat, but it by no means eliminated it. Another thing that somewhat reduced dissent in the Confederacy, or at least put some limitations on it, was that Davis never had to face re-election, since the Confederate Constitution created a single six-year term of office for the president, and like I said, the Confederate government really only existed for about four years anyway. 
That said, Davis still definitely faced some opposition, and like Lincoln, he tried to institute some authoritarian measures in response to it. In other words, even setting aside the whole issue of slavery for the sake of argument, Jefferson Davis had an authoritarian bent and was nothing at all like a real consistent defender of civil liberties. Only a couple of months before Confederate conscription was enacted, which was back in February of 1862, at the time that Jefferson Davis went from being the provisional Confederate president to being its full president, he delivered an inaugural address in which, among other things, he contrasted the Confederacy's commitment to limited government and individual rights with some of the extraordinary measures that were already being taken in the North especially in the so-called border states, by the Lincoln administration. In this speech, Davis said the following, quote, Whatever of hope some may have entertained that a returning sense of justice would remove the danger with which our rights were threatened and render it possible to preserve the union of the Constitution must have been dispelled by the malignity and barbarity of the northern states in the prosecution of the existing war. The confidence of the most hopeful among us must have been destroyed by the disregard they have recently exhibited for all the time-honored bulwarks of civil and religious liberty. Bastilles filled with prisoners, arrested without civil process or indictment, duly found. The writ of habeas corpus suspended by executive mandate a state legislature controlled by the imprisonment of members whose avowed principles suggested to the federal executive that there might be another added to the list of seceded states. By the way, he's basically talking about Maryland there. Continuing. Elections held under threats of a military power, civil officers, peaceful citizens, and gentle women incarcerated for opinion's sake, proclaimed the incapacity of our late associates to administer a government as free liberal and humane, as that established for our common use. For proof of the sincerity of our purpose to maintain our ancient institutions, we may point to the Constitution of the Confederacy and the laws enacted under it, as well as to the fact that, through all the necessities of an unequal struggle, there has been no act on our part to impair personal liberty or the freedom of speech, of thought, or of the press. The courts have been open, the judicial functions fully executed, and every right of the peaceful citizen maintained as securely as if a war of invasion had not disturbed the land. Five days after giving that speech, the Confederate Congress passed a measure granting Davis the ability to declare martial law at his discretion to deal with the emergencies related to the war. And two days after that, on March 1st, 1862, Davis issued a proclamation declaring martial law in certain areas of Virginia. Quote, By virtue of the power vested in me by law to declare the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus in cities threatened with invasion, I, Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States of America, do proclaim that martial law is hereby extended over the city of Richmond and the adjoining and surrounding county to the distance of ten miles. And I do proclaim the suspension of all civil jurisdiction, with the exception of that of the mayor of the city and the suspension of the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus within the said city and surrounding country to the distance aforesaid. End quote. 
In reality, the real reason for declaring martial law at the time in and around Richmond wasn't immediate Union conquest of the city so much as it was seeking to suppress the crime and chaos and disorder in Richmond and some other nearby cities. Confederate General John Winder was placed in charge of the military policing of Richmond, and he, in the words of historian James McPherson, quote, created an efficient but ruthless corps of military police. In addition to banning the sale of liquor, establishing a pass system, arresting drunken soldiers, gamblers, pickpockets, and thieves, Winder jailed without trial several disloyal citizens, including two women and John Minor Botts, a venerable Virginia union, unionist and former U.S. congressman, end quote. By the way, fun fact, Confederate General John Winder also confiscated all privately owned firearms in Richmond. That's kind of interesting. However, all that said, even the generally Lincoln-friendly historian James McPherson admits, quote, Davis possessed the authority to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in Richmond for a total of only 16 months. During most of that time, he exercised this power more sparingly than did his counterpart in Washington, end quote. And Davis, to his credit on the issue throughout the war, never suspended the writ of habeas corpus without authorization from the Confederate Congress. And in the words of historian Richard Franklin Benzel, quote, Even when granted this power, Davis never used suspension as sweepingly or with as much overt political purpose, end quote, compared with what Lincoln did in the North. However, I think that this was at least as much due to the relative institutional and logistical weakness of the Confederate government than to Davis's own preferences, because if you read much about Davis, you quickly detect an authoritarian personality that tended to take any criticism personally and that tended to categorize people as either friends or enemies and make all decisions according to that. So you can see things like Davis keeping the absolutely horrible Braxton Bragg in charge of the war in the West until it was pretty much a lost cause, and then resisting putting in the much, much more competent Joseph Johnston until it was probably much too late. In fact, even Davis's own wife once wrote of him, quote, If anyone disagrees with Mr. Davis, he resents it and ascribes the difference to the perversity of his opponent, end quote. So, for what it's worth, in my own opinion, I think that if Davis had had the political and institutional and logistical capability to be more authoritarian in regard to civil liberties, he probably would have done so. As the war went on, Davis put many other areas of the Confederacy under martial law at times, and oftentimes this would be areas that had some Union sympathies, such as, for example, the very strongly Unionist eastern counties of Tennessee, where there were some mass arrests and even some executions that took place for disloyalty real and alleged. And in addition to that, Confederate military commanders in the field were often able to basically, for practical purposes at least, just sort of ignore habeas corpus in their areas and get away with doing so, and basically impose de facto martial law. That said, there were much fewer overall of these sorts of arrests in the South than in the North during the war, and according to Richard Franklin Benzel, much of the arrests that were carried out under martial law in the South during the war actually had to do with arresting civilians who were selling liquor to Confederate soldiers, something which was illegal. 
over the course of the war, many Southerners began to speak of Jeff Davis's government as despotic and tyrannical, and the main things they cited were, first and foremost, conscription, and secondly, the suspension of civil liberties. And these two things often, though not always, went together, because enforcing conscription was one of the most common reasons that Confederate authorities cited to justify abridging people's civil liberties. A lot of defenders of civil liberties against the Confederate central government in general, and against President Davis in particular, happened to be Georgians. And one of them was none other than Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens, who said, quote, Away with the idea of getting independence first and looking for liberty afterwards. Our liberties, once lost, may be lost forever. End quote. And Stevens was pretty comfortable with publicly bashing Davis very outspokenly, saying things like this about the Confederate president, quote, He is a little, conceited, hypocritical, sniveling, canting, malicious, ambitious, dogged, knave, and fool, end quote. And after Davis suspended habeas corpus, Stevens wrote, quote, Far better that our country should be overrun by the enemy, our cities sacked and burned, and our land laid desolate, than that the people should thus suffer the citadel of their liberties to be entered and taken by professed friends. End quote. And his fellow Georgian Robert Toombs, who'd briefly been the Confederacy's first Secretary of State before he quit due to problems with Davis, said, quote, The road to liberty does not lie through slavery. End quote. By the way, I wonder if Toombs, who was not a stupid nor an educated man, ever was reflective enough to have thought about the irony of that statement when applied to a confederacy that claimed to be seeking its independence in the name of liberty, but whose society and economy were to such a large extent built on chattel slavery. But anyway... Toombs also said that he believed that even if the South did win its independence, quote, it will make the recovery of our public liberty hereafter impossible without another bloody revolution, end quote. And that brings up a very important point, which is the trouble with trying to gain your independence and liberty through a war. You know, when some area is trying to break away from a larger state or empire and establish its independence and... You know, most of the time, at least a large part of their rhetoric has to do with increasing liberty by breaking out of a larger political system. But the problem is the tendency of newly independent states that are formed through a war of independence to have the same crisis and leviathan dynamic occur that occurs in established states when they go to war. So you can see this in the American Revolution, for example, if you can remember my coverage on that. In the name of fighting the American Revolutionary War, we get the earliest beginnings of big government in the American colonies. And in fact, pretty quickly after getting independence from the British Empire, the new U.S. government was asking Americans to pay more taxes than the British had ever demanded. Now, other than Georgians, North Carolinians were the other Confederates who probably tended on average to be the most resistant to the central government, though opponents of Davis could be found in many places throughout the Confederacy. After elections in 1863, the Confederate Congress actually had very significant anti-Davis minorities. Again, we don't have formal parties yet, but they're sort of identifiable factions. And about 40% of the Confederate House after 1863 was anti-Davis, and almost half of the Confederate Senate was as well. Jeffrey Hummel writes, quote, 
Because of all these watchdogs, the rebel government had to be more circumspect in its restrictions upon civil liberties. He means relative to the Union government. Continuing, Unlike Lincoln, Davis rarely acted without congressional authorization, but this just made the Confederate suppression of dissent more decentralized than the Union's. End quote. Early in the war, the Confederate Congress passed a measure that said that residents of the South who'd been born in the North had to swear an oath of loyalty to the Confederacy or they would lose all their rights and property and be deported. As the war dragged on, many citizens actually, whether born in the North or not, often face loss of rights and property simply for not actively supporting the Confederate war effort enough. In addition, the South, with its strong tradition of vigilante justice, saw lots of non-official enforcement against dissent, up to and including lynchings and other violent forms of mob action, which the authorities tended to tolerate and not do much about. In other words, there was a greater degree of horizontal enforcement happening in the South than in the North to suppress dissent. The Confederate government was generally less harsh on censoring the press than the Union government was, but they still did suppress some publications that leaned pro-Union. And in the realm of restricting travel in Confederate territory, the Confederate government actually went much further than the Union government did in its territory, eventually requiring passports just for people to travel throughout Confederate territory, which, by the way, was a practice that they based on the pre-existing system for controlling and monitoring the movement of slaves and doing things like requiring papers to travel through different areas. As the war dragged on and the Confederate government's encroachments on civil liberties increased, and as the economy of the South continued to collapse, both due to the effects of the war itself, you know, the destruction of infrastructure, the destruction of crops, the liberation of slaves, etc., and also due to the terrible economic policies of the Confederate government, which, again, have been described by some modern writers as war socialism. As those things continued, the individuals and factions who opposed Davis became more and more likely to favor simply ceasing the war and throwing in the towel and returning to the Union. So, if you'll recall my Crisis in Leviathans episode from a while back and combine it with this one, you'll see that the Confederate government did much more to encroach on its respective population's economic rights and liberties, while the Union did more to encroach upon its respective population's civil liberties, though neither government was very admirable in regard to either civil or economic liberties. Also, as the war dragged on, the more remote areas of the Confederacy, such as West Texas, Florida, the Appalachians and Ozark Mountains areas, some of the swamps of Louisiana and Mississippi, those sorts of places that are what I think James C. Scott would refer to as state-resistant terrain or state-resistant geography, something like that, those sorts of areas became more and more anarchic zones, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. They became sort of like maroon communities, consisting of deserters and draft dodgers and things like that, and sometimes sketchier people who were just flat-out bandits. And Jones County, Mississippi is probably one of the more famous examples of a place that ended up this way during the war. And you can see the film Free State of Jones or check out my review of it back in DHP episode 138 for more on that.
So now let's talk about the suppression of dissent that occurred in the Union during the war. In the North, a significant portion of the Democratic Party openly opposed the war and called themselves Peace Democrats, as opposed to the War Democrats, who, while they might have disagreed with many of Lincoln's policies, they supported his overall war effort. These Peace Democrats, of course, were known as copperheads to their enemies, because they're, of course, these untrustworthy snake traitors, right? And while war Democrats were sometimes criticized and attacked by the Republican majorities that controlled the federal government at the time, it was the peace Democrats who found themselves much more often in the crosshairs in a significant way. Those who were the most likely to be peace Democrats were Catholic immigrants in the urban areas of the North and some of the rural residents of kind of the southern part of the Midwest, especially the southern counties of states like Ohio and Illinois and Indiana. And the southern counties of those states had a lot of residents who were really transplanted Southerners. I mean, think even of Lincoln himself, right? Originally born in Kentucky, then moved to Illinois. So in the southern counties of some of these Midwestern states, there's a lot of transplanted Southerners or descendants of transplanted Southerners. And even to this day, the southernmost counties of these states often contain a lot of people with a lot of Southern sympathy and Southern culture. And in addition to that, the so-called border states, Maryland, Kansas, Kentucky, contained a lot of dissenters who were not only just anti-war, but actively pro-Confederate, especially in the early part of the war when it wasn't clear that the Confederacy was going to lose. Now, Lincoln did not take radical dissent very well because he felt that his cause of saving the Union was just sacred and above reproach. You may recall that the so-called border states of Maryland, Kansas, and Kentucky, which for at least the first half of the war anyway, contained a lot of pro-Confederate people. Oh, in Missouri too, by the way, that's a really important one I accidentally left out. That These border states contained a lot of pro-Confederate people, and had they been left to their own devices at the beginning of everything, they might have very well, at least a few of them, especially Maryland and perhaps also Kentucky and Missouri, may have voted to secede from the Union, and that these states were essentially put under martial law, and military occupation from very early in the war. And more people who were arrested essentially for dissent or suspected disloyalty, more people were arrested in the border states than in any other Union states. These arrests, by the way, included some high-profile people, such as a grandson of Francis Scott Key, who ironically was locked up at Fort McHenry in Baltimore, where... At a battle in the War of 1812, his grandfather had been inspired to write the Star-Spangled Banner. In addition, a good chunk of Maryland's legislature, as well as the mayor of Baltimore and the police chief and four police commissioners of Baltimore, among other prominent citizens in Maryland, were locked up. Lincoln unilaterally suspended the writ of habeas corpus, meaning without prior congressional approval or authorization, so that he could detain people indefinitely without trial in the border states and in some other areas of the North as well. Now, in the U.S. constitutional system, the right to suspend habeas corpus in an extreme emergency has generally been thought of as belonging solely to Congress and not to the executive in large part because this is mentioned in Article 1, which is the part of the U.S. Constitution that lays out the powers and procedures and so on of the legislature. Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus in some areas began with an order in April of 1861 
to suspend the writ of habeas corpus along the railroad corridor that went from Philadelphia down to D.C. in order to put down any efforts by residents of Maryland to prevent Union troops from getting to Washington, which was happening. Again, the U.S. Constitution seems to indicate that only Congress is supposed to be able to do this, but they weren't in session at the time, and Lincoln just went ahead and did it himself. Which, he did a whole bunch of other things in that period as well that his opponents are going to argue were unconstitutional for him to do without congressional authorization. Lincoln, soon after this, extended the suspension of habeas corpus along railroad corridors running all the way from Philadelphia to Maine, so now it's going ultimately the entire railroad corridor from Maine to D.C. is a no habeas corpus zone, and then also all of Kentucky and Maryland and part of Missouri. Then in September of 1862, following the first real significant resistance to military conscription, Lincoln extended the suspension of habeas corpus throughout the North. And Congress basically went along with it. Rather than impeaching Lincoln for this or even threatening impeachment, initially they just did nothing. And then months later, they passed an act that kind of retroactively affirmed what Lincoln had done. Richard Franklin Benzel writes of this, quote, Because Congress was not in session, Lincoln's proclamation was an aggressive assertion of executive power in that congressional concurrence commonly considered to be required by the Constitution was not evidenced by supporting legislation. Execution of central state policy was carried out by the military under executive direction, and the sweeping repression of dissent and public resistance to Union policy tended to blur any distinction between civilian and military rule. Both suspension of the writ and martial law were used by the Union to detain thousands of individuals who represented real and imagined threats to the security of the government and to close down dissident newspapers or influence their editorial policy, end quote. And to figure out whom to imprison or whom to try to coerce into changing their tune or shut down in the case of the press, the Lincoln administration put together a makeshift prototype surveillance state. As Jeffrey Hummel explains, quote, First, the State Department and later the War Department loosely coordinated surveillance through a network of special agents, U.S. Marshals, Pinkerton detectives, local police, private informers, and above all, military officials. One widely circulated story claimed that Secretary of State William Seward bragged about his arbitrary power to the British ambassador, and this is an alleged quote from Seward, I can touch a bell on my right hand and order the arrest of a citizen of Ohio. I can touch a bell again and order the imprisonment of a citizen of New York, and no power on earth except the President of the United States can release him. Can the Queen of England do as much? End quote. Because of the suspension of habeas corpus, suspected or real Confederate sympathizers were usually arrested and detained with no charges and no trial. Most of them were released within a matter of months, usually after having to swear an oath of loyalty to the Union, but some were held for longer periods of time. Because of the kind of ad hoc nature of a lot of this stuff, we don't have the most accurate records, but... Estimates are usually in the neighborhood of 13 to 14,000 civilians being held as political prisoners, and these are northern civilians, these are civilians in Union states. 13 to 14,000 were locked up by the Lincoln administration over the course of the war. Again, 
for varying amounts of time, some of them for quite a long time, most for a matter of months, but still you're being arrested and detained for months without any sort of real charges. During the first year of the war, John Merriman, who was a prominent Marylander and Confederate sympathizer, who had done some sabotage against some infrastructure in Maryland in order to mess up the Union troop movements, Merriman was imprisoned without trial and somehow managed to get a lawyer to file for a writ of habeas corpus on his behalf. In the decision, which was known as Ex Parte Merriman, the then Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Taney, who actually in this particular case was acting as a circuit judge, ordered Merriman to be either produced to stand trial or to be released. And Taney cited the Constitution's provision that said that only the Congress, or at least, you know, very strongly implied that only the Congress could suspend habeas corpus, and that as of the time that Merriman was detained, the Congress had not yet done so. Lincoln had just done so on his own orders. And Taney wrote that if Lincoln got away with this sort of thing, quote, the people of the United States are no longer living under a government of laws, but every citizen holds life, liberty, and property at the will and pleasure of the army officer in whose military district he may happen to be found, end quote. Now, what did Lincoln do when he heard about Taney's ruling? Well, he simply ignored it and continued to hold Merriman in Fort McHenry without trial for several more months, after which he was indicted for treason, but never went to trial. And my understanding is basically he would have had to have been tried by a jury of Marylanders, and everybody kind of knew there's no way a Maryland jury was going to convict this guy for treason. But very interesting thing to note, by the way, when Lincoln heard that Taney had ruled against him and in favor of Merriman, Lincoln actually wrote up orders to have the then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court arrested. Now, what happened? Why have most of you probably never heard of this? Well, supposedly the marshals who were given the orders had some qualms about doing this, and they just, you know, got the orders and never really acted on them in the immediate aftermath of Lincoln issuing the orders. And then apparently, Lincoln himself had second thoughts and realized this might be a bridge too far, and he just kind of let the matter die. So the orders were drawn up to arrest the chief justice for ruling against Lincoln, but never carried out. But still, it's a very revealing episode, because think about it, Lincoln's initial reaction when learning that the chief justice had ruled against him was A, to refuse to implement that decision and keep the guy locked up, and B, to draw up orders to arrest the chief justice. Checks and balances, indeed. I guess Lincoln must be one of those guys, like Andrew Jackson, like Teddy Roosevelt, like Woodrow Wilson, who thinks that the executive is more equal than the other two supposedly co-equal branches of the U.S. federal government. Probably the most high-profile case of political prosecution by the Lincoln administration over the course of the war was that against Clement Vallandigham of Ohio. Vallandigham was a Democratic congressman from Ohio, and from the start, Vallandigham opposed Lincoln. He opposed Lincoln's policies, he opposed Lincoln's war, and when they happened, he opposed Lincoln's infringements on civil liberties. When Lincoln announced his emancipation policy, Vallandigham opposed that as well, and explicitly denounced the idea of a war to liberate slaves. So, 
you know, we might sympathize with Vallandigham in his defense of civil liberties and perhaps in some of his criticisms of Lincoln's overall war policies and Lincoln's corporatism. That was another thing that Vallandigham uh, criticized, including accusing Lincoln of being a tool of Wall Street, which I largely agree with. And then, of course, he had to go and be a bit of a racist and saying, oh, and, and another horrible thing Lincoln's doing is trying to free slaves. And that's kind of when someone like me, you know, you kind of facepalm like, man, can't we just get uh, a consistent defender of freedom across the board? And, you know, we had Lysander Spooner and people like that, but they weren't nearly as prominent as this Ohio politician was. But anyway, in the 1862 midterm elections, Vallandigham lost his seat in Congress, largely due, by the way, to gerrymandering of districts on the part of the Republicans in Congress. And um, also, by the way, just a side note, in the midterm elections of 1862, Republican votes seem to have been boosted by manipulation of the voting via military occupation in the border states. It's very, very strange, and it looks fishy as hell, because weirdly— Despite the fact that Republican votes actually dropped off in many areas of the North in 1862 relative to the 1860 vote in the border states, which is weird because these are states that had a heck of a lot of Confederate sympathizers and who had, you know, produced very little votes for Lincoln in the 1860 election, yet somehow in the border states, the votes for Republicans jumped up relative to 1860, and it's pretty clear what happened. Military forces occupying the border states prevented many suspected Confederate sympathizers from being able to vote. So anyway, as a lame duck congressman in early 1863, Vallandigham gave a very strong speech opposing Lincoln and everything he was doing, and Vallandigham also stated that he'd opposed abolitionism all along, and then he started to run for governor of Ohio. Still very outspoken in opposing Lincoln and all of his policies. In April of 1863, the great, quote-unquote, right, sarcastic, General Ambrose Burnside, who at the time was in charge of the military department of the Ohio, he issued an order stating that, quote, declaring sympathies for the enemy, quote, would not be tolerated in the area of which he was in charge. Then on May 1st, 1863, Vallandigham gave another very strong anti-war, anti-Lincoln speech, knowing that some of Burnside's men were observing him. And in this speech, he attacked Lincoln's encroachment on civil liberties, but also his emancipation policy, and characterized the war as, quote, a war for the freedom of the blacks and the enslavement of the whites, end quote. Four days later, Vallandigham was arrested for having given this speech. And over the next few days, Vallandigham was tried and convicted by a military tribunal for expressing anti-war sentiments, again, in Ohio. This is not very close to any front lines or anything like that. And Vallandigham was initially sentenced to imprisonment for the remainder of the war. Now, his lawyer filed for a writ of habeas corpus, which the federal courts at the time, including the Supreme Court, denied. They deferred to the president because it's an emergency. That's what always tends to happen. Protests broke out in support of Vallandigham in many parts of the North, so Lincoln tried a different strategy. He commuted Vallandigham's sentence by trying to get rid of him, but without making him a martyr. 
Uh, basically, what Lincoln did was strip Vallandigham of his citizenship and kick him out of the Union, sending him down to the Confederacy, where he immediately surrendered himself and was initially treated as kind of like an alien prisoner. He eventually was able to leave the Confederacy, went to Bermuda, and then Canada, from which he ran in absentia for the Democratic nomination for the governor of Ohio, which he won before then being badly beaten by the Republican candidate in the general election. The Supreme Court weighed in, sort of, on what had been done to Vallandigham in an 1864 case known as Ex Parte Vallandigham. They basically passed the buck by unanimously ruling that they couldn't take an appeal from a military tribunal. So they didn't really rule on any of the fundamental arguments, they just kind of said, oh, we don't have jurisdiction because this was a military case. And so they're tacitly accepting that that was an okay thing for Lincoln and his military people in Ohio to do, to arrest this civilian politician for things he said in a speech. The Lincoln administration also surveilled and censored the transmission of information and the movement of people in the North in a bunch of ways. As Jeffrey Hummel explains, quote, the federal government simultaneously monitored and censored both the mails and telegraphs, and for the first time demanded passports of those entering and leaving the country. No one eligible for the draft could depart. It also suppressed newspapers. Over 300, including the Chicago Times, the New York World, and the Philadelphia Evening Journal, had to cease publication for varying periods. If the Postmaster General banned an anti-war paper from the mail, it had received the kiss of death. Early in the war, a special congressional committee, relying primarily upon anonymous informants, conducted sweeping investigations in order to root out disloyalty among government employees. End quote. Yes, the Lincoln administration forcibly shut down, or very often intimidated into silence, most seriously radical dissenting northern newspapers. And in some cases, he simply had editors arrested whom he didn't like, and he also would refuse postal service to dissenting papers. And again, for every one paper that you actually shut down, you know, with U.S. Marshals or by arresting the editor, you intimidate many others who are also against you, who are also dissenting, who simply see the writing on the wall and say, all right, uh, let's change our editorial tune, let's moderate things, let's, you know, cover different aspects of the news, whatever it is. This is what's known as a chilling effect. You don't have to actually prosecute and forcibly shut down every dissenter. You just have to do it enough with enough high-profile examples that it intimidates all the rest. Most of these sorts of actions were at least begun prior to Congress convening after Fort Sumter, and they were continued and enlarged over the course of the war, largely without congressional input, other than sometimes, you know, retroactively passing something that okayed what Lincoln was already doing. And in the rare cases when the Congress would try to put in some safeguards on some of these things, the Lincoln administration would just ignore them and nothing would really happen. And since Congress was dominated by Republicans, you know, there's really no one seriously considering enacting real checks and balances against the Lincoln administration as far as the majority of Congress were concerned. Now, Entirely predictable, what you all might expect, Lincoln justified all of this in the name of fighting and winning the war and saving the sacred union, making arguments such as saying that too much dissent and criticism of the war might encourage northern men to dodge the draft and things like that, you know, kind of classic 
turning dissent into disloyalty, and even turning dissent into providing aid and comfort to the enemy. These are going to be basically the same arguments used to justify the suppression of civil liberties in World War I and World War II, by the way. While no one in Congress or the Supreme Court was able to make a successful stand against Lincoln's encroachments on civil liberties, and for that matter, relatively few even made a serious attempt, other than, you know, Tawney and a few other things that didn't amount to much. But after Lincoln's death and after the war was over, the courts actually ruled against some of his actions. And this despite the fact that by that point, Tawney was dead and the Supreme Court was actually packed with five justices who'd been appointed by Lincoln. Probably the most famous Supreme Court case that ruled against Lincoln's wartime authoritarianism is the 1866 case Ex Parte Milligan. And in this case, the court, again containing five justices appointed by Lincoln, unanimously ruled against a wartime military tribunal that had convicted an Indiana man named Lambden Milligan, who was an outspoken Confederate sympathizer. Milligan had actually been sentenced to death. Now, the court said that Lincoln's use of martial law in Indiana was invalid and unconstitutional because martial law could only be imposed in an area in the case of real as opposed to possible future invasion. And it had to be real invasion and serious enough that it caused the normal civilian courts to be just not functioning at all. And that, of course, was not the case in Indiana during the Civil War. So anyway, as we can see, you get a classic case which happens again in World War I and World War II, and on some level in the War on Terror and on some level in the more hysterical phases of the Cold War as well, this idea of treating dissent as treason and of giving the executive a free hand to kind of do whatever they want. And at the time, the other branches of government just go along with it. They refuse to criticize in most cases. And when they do, the executive just ignores them and does it anyway. But then don't worry, you know, years later, when the crisis is over, you might get some retroactive court cases that say, oh yeah, in hindsight, what was done during that last crisis was totally unconstitutional. Oopsie. And that in three bucks will get you an iced coffee at Starbucks. So as we can see, the central governments, the states, in the sense, in the European sense of the state being the the sovereign leviathan, the central states of both sides, Union and Confederacy, had a very, very shady record in regard to civil liberties and individual rights and dissent and all that. And if the Union's encroachments on civil liberties were, in many cases, much more effective, that really had more to do with the relative strength and effectiveness of their organization and bureaucracy than with a lack of desire on the part of many in the Confederate government and of its president. The Union was a government that had been around for almost a century. At that point, the Confederacy was starting from scratch, so it's no surprise that there was more capability of the Union government to be successful in sort of centralized suppression of dissent. War is the health of the state indeed. But what made both sides in this conflict keep it up, despite the harm to morale and happiness caused by the suppression of dissent, despite the harm to both societies of conscription, the the harm to people's happiness 
that was caused by conscription and the, just the carnage and loss and destruction of the war itself. Why did they keep it up as long as they did? Well, a big part of the answer is faith. And in this case, it's a tale of two civil religions. I'm going to talk a little bit about civil religion in roughly the second half or the last third or so of the war. And this is a topic I've hit upon in this series numerous times, largely inspired and informed by Harry Stout's excellent book, Upon the Altar of the Nation, which I highly recommend. I want to hit this topic of civil religion one more time here to discuss a bit about what happened in regard to civil religion over the last year and a half or so of the war. Harry Stout writes, quote, By 1863, political preaching in the North and South had virtually completed the apotheosis of patriotism into a full-blown civil religion, end quote. And he also writes, quote, by August 1863, the war had created and consecrated two American civil religions, mortally opposed, but both Christian and both American, end quote. And this inculcation of a strong civil religion in both sides of the conflict made it increasingly difficult for either side to want to cut their losses and negotiate some sort of an end to the violence short of total victory. And it made it increasingly political, unlikely for leaders of either side to do so, even if they had wanted to. And so the war continued on, on an ever-increasing scale of violence and destruction, for another 21 months after Vicksburg and Gettysburg, those twin Union victories that now, at the benefit of hindsight, we all look back on and say, yeah, the Confederacy really, in military terms, was pretty screwed after that. The war continued for another 21 months of carnage and destruction. And all the while, the sermons of leading pastors in both the North and the South increasingly were dominated by concepts of martyrdom, of blood sacrifice, and these things being totally necessary to found, in the case of the Confederacy, or preserve, in the case of the Union, a sacred nation. There was also a growing apocalypticism in many sermons and in many written pieces by the religious press. And on occasion, they even went into the realm of outright atavistic bloodlust in some of their more extreme rhetoric. In addition, at times, some of this sort of language could be seen creeping into the words of secular politicians and the secular press as well. So in the case of the South, historian Harry Stout writes this of the religious press in the Confederacy, quote, in opposition to secular editors and critics of Davis, who rose up from the ashes of defeat. The Confederate religious press proved to be the truest believers and perpetrators of the sacred Confederacy and its civil religion. They almost unanimously praised the cause of the war in defeat no less than victory, and honored its political and military leaders. End quote. And in regard to the latter part of that statement, again, I've mentioned this before, but the late Stonewall Jackson was sanctified as a perfect Christian martyr, and Robert E. Lee was generally placed on a pedestal as well. 
a South Carolinian minister named Benjamin Powell in December of 1863 in endorsing a national fast that had been declared by the Confederate government said that, quote, it is the nearest approach which can be made to an act of worship by the state as such. The state is, in some clear sense, a sort of person before God. The offering which patriotism renders to country a sovereign state on bended knee with sacramental fervor dedicates to God, end quote. And there was a huge amount of religious revivalism in the Confederate Army itself in the latter half of the war. And if anything, this religious revivalism seemed to spike up higher whenever the Confederacy suffered a major defeat. Confederate politicians, and Davis in particular, whether they really believed the civil religion that was being propagated or not in their heart of hearts, they leaned ever more heavily on religious-sounding justifications for the war as things ground on. Harry Stout puts it this way, quote, Already by 1863, the Southern pulpit and religious press increasingly addressed the public heart rather than the public mind. Reasoned arguments could articulate issues and generate debate and conflict, but they could not sustain courage in the face of the bloodbaths of this war. Reason could not motivate suicide, but faith could. Davis and his universal phalanx of clerical supporters and generals asserted that God was precisely the point of the war. A revitalized Southern spirituality concentrated on individual salvation along with the logic of the Confederate Jeremiah, which sanctified the entire South, would shape the perceptions of white Southerners long after the fall of Richmond and the surrender at Appomattox. End quote. There was much more religious revivalism in the Confederate Army than in the Union Army during the war, and the revivals were increasingly covered by the Southern press, including the secular press as well as the religious press, in part to have some positive news to report other than the increasing disaster of Confederate military losses in the latter part of the war. One can see this statism and warlust in at least some of the secular press as well, though often without as much directly Christian references. So, for example, the Richmond Daily Dispatch in July of 1863 printed the following, quote, The taste for blood grows with the indulgence, and men become every day more like wolves as they give way to the growing appetite. We are getting savage with the rest of our countrymen, and we confess to a special delight in the heaping of Yankee corpses, end quote. And the Richmond Daily Whig in July of 1863, quote, The glory of Athens and the strength of Sparta were acquired by making every man a soldier, and considering non-combatants as drones in the national hive, end quote. That's pretty hardcore status collectivist right there. And there were, to be fair, in the South a rather small number of religious critics of the Confederate government and at least some of its war policies, as there were in the North, although the proportion of religious dissenting voices in the South was, if anything, even lower than it was in the North. In general, like I said before, and I think I was quoting Stout, the religious press tended to be the most consistent supporters of Davis and of the war. Overall, the experience of the war made the South much more evangelical than it had been before the conflict, and this particular brand of Southern evangelicalism, increasingly mixed with fundamentalism by the end of the 19th century, 
would become a major integral part of Southern identity and culture ever since. In part because when the South lost the war, most Southern evangelical preachers made the argument that defeat had actually been a good thing because the experience had made the South more Christian. And so it's a way for Southerners to kind of cope with the loss of the war and also to kind of make it seem okay. It's a narrative you can plug it into to make it still seem like a good thing. Harry Stout writes of the Southern civil religion, quote, No one in 1861 could have predicted that ministers would claim war and defeat as a moral and religious good that made men Christians. Yet, by 1864, that was indeed their claim. In this madness, we see the seeds of what would become the post-war religion of the lost cause and the triumph of evangelical Protestantism. In the New South, meaning after the war, to be evangelical and born again would come to signify the Confederate Army as well as the Southern pulpit. The lost cause of the white Christian South would constitute a self-contained region and religion isolated from the international community of believers that preserved the sacred memories of the war and the revivals its army produced, end quote. Now, how about in the North? Well, in the North, many pastors and ministers continued to stoke the fires of civil religion by continuing, as they had been, to link patriotism and loyalty to the Union with religious rectitude. Many of these same clerics continued, as they had during the war, to try to incorporate Christianity more explicitly into the U.S. system, with some partial successes. So, they ultimately failed in the effort that many of them were making to try to get some sort of explicit endorsement-type reference to God or even to Jesus or the Christian religion added to the U.S. Constitution, which contains no such reference. Now, this was too much for Lincoln and many other politicians. However, Lincoln was willing to take some lesser measures to try to foster the civil religion, perhaps most famously by declaring thanksgivings and that sort of thing. But also, for example, during the war, Lincoln made In God We Trust an official motto of the U.S. federal government for the first time, and the U.S. federal government began minting coins for the first time that said In God We Trust during the Civil War. Although, by the way, that saying would not be added to paper currency of the U.S. until the 1950s. As far as preachers spouting off the civil religion that we can quote, a good one is the Reverend Horace Bushnell, who was, I believe, a Congregationalist minister somewhere up in New England. And he wrote an essay after Gettysburg entitled The Doctrine of Loyalty, in which he said the following, quote, how far the loyal sentiment reaches and how much it carries with it or after it must also be noted. It yields up willingly husbands, fathers, brothers, and sons consenting to the fearful chance of a home always desolate. It offers body and blood and life on the altar of its devotion. It is a fact, a political worship, offering to seal itself by a martyrdom in the field. Wonderful, grandly honorable fact that human nature can be lifted by an inspiration so high, even in the fallen state of wrong and evil. End quote. When, in November of 1863, Lincoln declared a national Thanksgiving Day in the United States, which is generally seen as the beginning of kind of the modern nationwide American Thanksgiving Day, although obviously you can trace earlier versions of it, particularly in New England, all the way back to the colonial period. 
But anyway, when Lincoln declared a national Thanksgiving Day in November of 1863, many religious authorities in the North jumped on this occasion to preach some form of civil religion. So, for example, Northern Baptist minister Henry Clay Fish said the following to a congregation of a couple thousand people in a sermon entitled Grand Issues of the War, quote, If we fail here, and above us darkness gathers, what star of hope remains in the whole horizon? I said rightly then that in this struggle we stand for the world, we represent the world. For the world freedom lives or dies, here and now. End quote. So, there you go. If the South succeeds in getting its independence, all hope of freedom on planet Earth is snuffed out for good. So, there's that classic sort of brew of the United States as the world messiah nation, with literally the fate of all humanity on its shoulders. And particularly during the months leading up to the 1864 election, many preachers and religious publications preached explicitly partisan messages, too basically saying that if you didn't vote for Lincoln and the Republicans, you were committing a crime against God. The American Presbyterian, for example, told its readers, quote, Every vote cast for Mr. Lincoln is a declaration for liberty, for law, for humanity, end quote. Northern Methodists and Presbyterian leaders frequently condemned any support of the Democratic Party or of any idea of a negotiated end to the war as being unchristian and sinful. Overall, these religious leaders and publications were very effective at portraying the war as a moralistic crusade, something that we saw as far back as the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which, if you'll recall, was written very early in the conflict. And again, as I've said repeatedly, and as Harry Stout drives home repeatedly in Upon the Altar of the Nation, the belief that the Union's war effort was a holy crusade was a major part of making it seem okay to deploy total war against the southern civilian population. Now, as in the South, there were some dissenting religious voices against the war in the North, but again, they were a small minority. For example, there was a pastor named N.H. Shank, who I believe was a Lutheran, in Baltimore, who said, quote, When victories mean nothing but wholesale slaughter and no great or permanent advantage secured, the victory mainly ascertained by measurement of blood and calculation of corpses, I fail to see in it the occasion of thanksgiving to God. And as we grow indifferent to the value of life, we become proportionately indifferent to those great moral interests attached to life. It is very difficult for us fairly to realize that we are making for history the bloodiest record which has ever crimsoned its scroll. It is very difficult for us to appreciate the fact that we have suddenly become not only a military, but a warlike people. But difficult as it is, the mind must open for the entrance and widen for the embrace of these tragical ideas. End quote. And a man named James Crookshanks of Massachusetts was troubled by the growing civil religion and said, quote, if indeed God be a God of peace, and he is almighty, we ask, why is war, with its untold evils, permitted to brood over this fair land? End quote. The answer, according to Crookshanks, was, quote, In a word, the army is the people's God. They idolize it. They worship it. The general, whoever he may be, who is on the crest of popularity, is, for the time being, the demigod of the nation. If his reputation has been established as a military leader, he becomes the idol of the nation. 
We are then as a people a nation of idolaters. We are at once the most religious and the most idolatrous people on the globe. End quote. Now, just by way of conclusion, by suppressing dissent and reinforcing belief up to and including the deliberate fostering of civil religion and an ever-increasing apocalypticism and messiah-redeemer-nation sort of elements, and by rounding up and imprisoning and silencing voices who don't go along with the program, both the Union and Confederate central governments caused the war to drag on longer, aided and abetted by their allies in the press and the wider society. This then caused the war to become ever more bloody to soldiers as well as civilians, and just in general destructive to civilians, especially in the South, but even to some extent less directly as often in the North than the war otherwise would have been. Suppressing dissent and reinforcing belief caused the Confederates to keep up the fight long after they rationally should have thrown in the towel, and it caused the Union to, without a whole lot of controversy, increasingly deploy the so-called hard war measures that targeted civilians' means of making a living and subsisting. It also, you know, looking ahead to later epochs of American history, laid the groundwork for turning Lincoln into the Christ figure of America's civil religion after he was assassinated. And furthermore, the kind of millennialist, messianic American exceptionalist rhetoric of Lincoln and many other northern politicians and ministers laid the groundwork that with the rise of kind of large policy jingoistic imperialism and progressivism at the dawn of the 20th century would put America on the path to getting into two world wars and then trying to be the world empire after the second of them. And as for the South, its own distinctive civil religion, with its increasingly fundamentalist evangelicalism, would lead it down a path of reactionary fundamentalism for many generations after the war, which would be a part of the reason, though by no means the only reason, that much of the South continued to lag behind the rest of the U.S. on most indicators of social and economic well-being right up through the present day in many areas. In addition, the South's civil religion provided yet another kind of column of support to keep racism front and center in the worldview of many white Southerners for many generations after the ending of chattel slavery. And of course, what also would happen to the Southern civil religion was, over the course of the Spanish-American War, the World Wars, and the Cold War, and now the War on Terror, the South became drawn into the larger American civil religion as sort of a distinctive religious order within the larger American civil religion, within the larger faith, within the larger church, in the same way that, say, for example, the Jesuits are a distinctive order within the larger context of the Catholic Church. So the Southern civil religion is now just an order within the American civil religion. And to illustrate this, witness things such as in present times, Southern white working class people being disproportionately represented in the U.S. military, and how often these people will display both Confederate and American flags. These soldiers and veterans from the Southern white working class will have on their pickup truck or on other places. They're just as likely to have the Confederate flag as the American flag, and sometimes both, melding the Southern civil religion with the larger U.S. civil religion. And witness, too, how often Southern evangelical churches in present times shamelessly incorporate worship of things such as the American flag, the U.S. military, and at least some U.S. political leaders 
into their church services. In other words, many Southerners have, for the past century or so, been some of the most extreme cheerleaders of American exceptionalism and belligerence and imperialism, despite the fact that it was the U.S. government and U.S. Army that carried out things like Sherman's March and Sheridan's destruction of the Shenandoah Valley. It's just been very easy for the Southern civil religion to be absorbed into the wider American civil religion in the same way that the pre-Christian pagan Romans would often just incorporate the gods of the people that they conquered into their own existing pantheon. So, long story short, the suppression of dissent and reinforcing of belief by both sides in the Civil War not only made the war longer, bloodier, and more destructive than it otherwise might have been, it also had long-term consequences in the form of providing some of the key ideological and even theological foundations of the 20th and 21st century American empire. War is the health of the state indeed. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on.
His day.